Ecclesiastes 5, starting at verse, at verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners? Except to feast their eyes on them. The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toils, and they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain, since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction and anger. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given for them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. I've seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions and honour so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not give them the ability to enjoy them and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, but no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. And in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. 
What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eyes see than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do keep uh, that passage open as we tackle the next uh, intriguing part of, of this book called Ecclesiastes. Uh, uh, one bit we didn't read or we're not going to look at in this series, uh, the start of chapter 5. Uh, these are good words to think about, aren't they? Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Go near to listen. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words uh, be few. We pray. Thank you, Lord, for the joy and privilege of coming to that God who's in heaven and coming to him not only as God but also as Father. Thank you that you speak to us. Please help us to approach you with listening uh, and humble ears and obedient hearts. And we pray this uh, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this week we got to discover uh, how Jess and Joe Thwaite plan to spend their whopping 186 million they won through the Eurovision, uh, Euro Millions jackpot. Apparently, they, they've capped their spending on their new home just to a mere meagre 7 million. They are planning a trip to Hawaii. And Joe can't wait to get his hands on uh, the keys to the car he's desired all his life, a Skoda Superb estate. <laughs> there you go. Well, as you read perhaps the stories of people hitting the, the jackpot millions, um, as this couple did, it's interesting what goes on, isn't it, in our hearts and in our heads. Perhaps as a, a sharp intake of breath, we think, wow, <laughs> that would be nice. As we imagine life without debts or mortgages or anxieties about rising fuel bills um, and the cost of living. Uh, perhaps if we're honest, we, we feel just, just a little tinge of jealousy and envy. Which I think deep down reveals that we think life would be better if that had been me. In our hearts we believe that if we had more we could live more. Is that true? Probably. Well, this uh, passage this morning, the teacher is, is going to seriously challenge that idea that if we have more, we can live more. In fact, he'll just expose the destructive power that ends up robbing us of life rather than granting us life. And if this feels like a little bit like familiar territory, uh, the teacher has already touched on these subjects uh, in his book already, and uh, we're not going to tackle every verse in depth. 
but as he circles around on this theme one more time, uh, perhaps looking back over his life, he urges us and insists that we don't make the same mistakes perhaps that he made. And as well as a powerful warning against uh, wasting and losing life, uh, a warning that, that dominates most of this passage, I hope before we're done we'll see too uh, a wonderful invitation that we are given to enjoy life. Uh, even to discover that contentment that eludes so many, uh, and maybe us too, uh, this morning. Let's focus first on that warning. A warning, I think, about grasping for gain, the way it consumes uh, so many, perhaps us too. And the teacher doesn't mince his words, does he, at the start of our passage. Notice how he starts out in verse 10. Uh, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. And then towards the end of our passage, he concludes this way, doesn't he? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. Better to be content with what we have than to be always looking for the next thing. It is a chasing after the winds. And did you notice what this grasping mindset results in? Our opening verse speaks of oppression and injustice that goes right to the very top. Everyone convinced that they are entitled to more, uh, grasping for more at every opportunity, uh, clambering over others to get it, uh, to get what they feel they're entitled to, um, so that the, the vulnerable, the poor at the bottom, get left with nothing. And the teacher says, that, that is, if that's what our default setting is, then why are we surprised? That's how it ends up in society, in our world. And when we look at those at the top, so often we see don't know, that, that dynamic in play. Leaders taking bribes, uh, creaming off the profits, uh, the cronyism that, where contracts are awarded to mates in return for loyalty. But even further down the chain, you find people don't mean, to happy, happy to play along, turning the blind eye to, to the sweatshops, the exploitation. I mean, if we benefit, if we get what we're entitled to, we'll turn a blind eye. Well, don't be surprised, says the teacher. Be realistic about the, the grasping mindset and what it produces, what it results in. And we as Christians should be, of all people, realists, shouldn't we? Uh, uh, because we know the reality of the human heart. <coughs> we know our hearts. We know that selfishness goes deep, doesn't it? That lust for stuff that often grabs, grabs at our hearts, pulls at them. And while we do want to campaign, let me, for fairer practices, for more transparency, uh, to support drives that promote ethically sourced goods, for, for regime change, perhaps, in some parts of the world, um, when the problem is our hearts, uh, that love and trust in stuff, we know, don't we, that only a new heart, only the gospel can deliver us ultimately from that problem. Well, there's lots in these verses that we might want to reflect on, but the thrust of the passage seems to focus particularly on the way that this grasping attitude, uh, being consumed by gain, not only wrecks the lives of others, but ultimately wrecks our lives too, even if we manage to get to the very top of the chain. Again, our passage is very brutal and blunt, isn't it? However much you have, however much, you will never have enough. Whatever you grasp for and gain, 
it will ultimately leave you unsatisfied. It's meaningless, pointless as trying to catch the mist. And as you read about the Thwaites, perhaps uh, we tell ourselves, don't we, you know, money can't buy you happiness, not even 180 million. But how many of us would just secretly love the chance to disprove that maxim? Of course, those who, who do get to the top, those who do have a lot, often are a, a wonderful example, aren't they, of, of, of what the, the, the teacher's saying. Uh, J.D. Rockefeller, perhaps widely considered to be the, the wealthiest American in all of history, was once asked, how much is enough? And he had a lot. And his famous reply, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. There's a man who kept reaching, who kept grasping, only to discover it wasn't enough. It didn't satisfy. Indeed, the teacher points out that so often those who have a lot never seem to be able to fully enjoy what they have. Verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they uh, to the owners except to feast their eyes upon them? As goods increase, as one commentator, so do the hangers-on. It's interesting, as the Thwaites spoke of their intention to share some of their money with family, apparently Mrs. Thwaite, Mr. Thwaites' ex-wife wanted to put on record how over the moon she was for the happy couple. <laughs> it's thoughtful, isn't it? And plenty of other winners have spoken about the relentless requests and demands, the old school friends who pop out of, no, out of nowhere. We even mentioned the inland revenue and the increasing cut it takes as we become more wealthy as our goods increase. And if there is some pleasure in uh, seeing the bank balance growing, the coffers bulging, often that's the only pleasure, says the teacher, that many get to enjoy as wealth comes with new worries and anxieties. Look at verse 12. The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Now, don't mishear the teacher. He's not saying that the anxieties of those who have very little, who don't know where the next meal comes from, is not important or significant. He's not advocating and celebrating poverty or destitution. But he is exposing, I think, the great lie of our culture, isn't he? That having more and gaining more is the answer to emptiness and dissatisfaction with life and means that we can live content without worries. Uh, Tom Ford, the fashion guru who turned around the fortunes of Gucci uh, from loss maker to a multi-billion enterprise, was asked one, what he most wanted as he looked forwards. And his answer was very revealing. He said, sleep, sleep. Anxious and overworking, achieving the material success he dreamed of had robbed him of that most basic of needs and pleasures. And there are many, I think, like him. Again, I was struck this week by how many have achieved the dream, perhaps of winning big, and found their lives blighted by the very things the teacher describes here. So Callie Rogers, one of the UK's youngest lottery winners at 16, described recently how her unexpected windfall left her with crippling anxiety. Or Margaret Lottery, uh, another Euro Millions winner, uh, dying recently paranoid and alone, uh, having just finished a huge uh, housing project or building project for herself that she never got to enjoy. 
uh, family member of the Loffrey family spoke these words after uh, she died. He said, the lottery win done none of us any good. Let me tell you, the day that she won it, I said, life is never going to be the same, and this is going to destroy some of us here. That's right, destroyed her. And that grasping for gain mindset, as we uh, pull wealth towards us, as we try and sort of hang on to it, as if it was something that satisfies or is substantial, we find that it harms us, verse 13. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. And sometimes even holding it can be quite hard, can't it? Just think about Icelandic banks, uh, stock markets going belly up, inflation soaring, nursing home bills that drain away all that we try and accumulate. It seems unfair, it's so grievous as wealth worked for, sweated for, is lost through some misfortune perhaps. Uh, so that there's nothing left, verse 14, to leave uh, to the kids. Of course, if we do manage to hold on to it for the duration of our lives, the truth is that we can never hold on to it uh, in death. Again, the teacher doesn't soften the blow, does he? Verse 15. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. So some wealthy person dies and we wonder how much they left. I'm going to wait, have we, for the, the will to be published? We know he, they leave, leave everything. Everything. A thousand years later, Jesus makes the same point, doesn't he? He tells that story of the famous farmer, successful farmer who uh, contemplates his life. Now he can see his barns bulging and he thinks about the security and the ease as he counts up his income. But he didn't count, did he, on death. And as his mates line up to praise him at the funeral, uh, it's cancelled out, isn't it, by God's verdict. You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Answer, not the farmer. All that effort, all that risk, all that toil. And its reward is prized from his grasping fingers as rigor mortis. Uh, sets in. Here's the thing, when we come into the world and we're naked with nothing, uh, and we leave with nothing, and shouldn't that teach us that whatever life is in, about in between, it can't be about getting more stuff? And if the teacher thinks this is grievous, a, a desperate unfairness, or well, seeing lives live for that end, grasping for gain, uh, should make us grieve at the sheer stupidity, the folly foolishness of making that our great ambition and goal. Uh, one great uh, thinker, Martin Luther, wrote these words about material goods and wealth. Since I shall forsake them when I die, shouldn't I forsake them rather than serve them while I live? And even before the grave takes us and takes away all that we have accumulated, verse 17 is hardly a description of the good life. All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Jesus, that's a, that's, a, that's a life grasping for stuff. Don't chase after uh, this life stuff. Don't be deceived by what it promises, but be aware of what it will deliver. 
In many ways, I think the, the, the words of the teacher echo, don't they, the words that Paul, the Apostle Paul will say many, many centuries later to a young Christian called Timothy, as he urges him not to set his heart on money. He writes, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Paul goes on to say that uh, such a love and pursuit of those desires, as well as uh, damaging others and our relationships with others, it is a form of self-harm. Some people eager for money have pierced themselves many griefs. And Paul ends by reminding us, like the teacher, that we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Uh, a while back, I bought this game uh, from a charity shop. It's called The Game of Life. It's apparently even older than Monopoly, I discovered this week, over 150 years old. Um, and we played it a couple of times as a family. Um, and it's supposed to sort of be a, a simulation of life as you go around the board, uh, collecting education, working up the ladder, collecting kids along the way in your car, which you drive around. Uh, it's all very exciting. Until you eventually end up in the retirement home. And to win, it's very simple. It's the person who ends up with the most stuff. Do you know, I did win, actually. It's very enjoyable. <laughs> but the, the, the winner is the one who ends up with the most stuff. It's a fun game, the game of life. Actually, the teachers, that is not life. It's not how you win at life. That is the way to lose. I doubt I'm telling you anything that you don't already know. These are truths that we've heard, perhaps truths that we've articulated over and over again, perhaps to ourselves when we miss out on something that we particularly want. Now, perhaps to our kids who might be obsessed with the latest things that their friends have. But the question, of course, is do we really believe what the teacher says? Does what I claim to believe about life and what life consists of does it shape my life? Will it shape my life this week? Or do I find myself looking at people like Joe and saying, if only, wait, if only. Well, the teacher does warn us about this grasping attitude. And I wonder whether it can be seen in our own lives, perhaps in the way that we gravitate towards things that we think will make our lives complete. So there's moments of envy as we look at the lives of others. Perhaps there's hours wasted looking at eBay or Amazon, perhaps trawling through the, the deals of the day. We're not even sure what we want, but we just know we need something to fill the gaps or the holes uh, that we have in our lives. Looking at the brochures, the daydreams of a better life, when we haven't got to think about uh, swiping or clicking and the cost to it, uh, our, our purse. Envying those who do have, quietly wishing that we did have, overworking so that we might have. I wonder if we need to repent, we need God's help, that we might be delivered from that grasping attitude. But more briefly, uh, as well as a warning, uh, I think within these words there is a wonderful encouragement, a sort of different mindset, um, encapsulated not so much in the grasping hands, 
but in the receiving hand, the hand that humbly receives, joyfully receives what God has given. Look down at verse 18 of chapter 5. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, uh, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. Well, here's the way of wisdom, says the teacher, the, the good life. In fact, literally the beautiful life. It's a sort of life that we might see in others that makes us go, oh, I want life like that. Eating, drinking, doing the, the sort of simple stuff of life and finding pleasure, satisfaction in them. Receiving these things as gifts from God rather than things to grasp. And it's striking, in a book where God's scarcity is mentioned in some chapters, here he pops up everywhere, doesn't he? And reminding us, I think, that if we want to discover life, real life, then it is life that revolves around him, uh, where he is at the centre. And notice it is a life that is itself a gift from God. He's the one who gifts us each day of our lives. Yes, life might seem fleeting. It passes very fast, like mist here today, gone tomorrow. But it is his gift uh, to us. And as is the food, the drink, the wealth. Indeed, the, as the Bible affirms again and again, every good thing that we enjoy can be traced back to our Heavenly Father. And you notice the teacher infers that even the enjoyment of these gifts is itself a gift from God. The very ability to enjoy and find pleasure in something is something that God has to gift to us. He grants. This is truly, isn't it, a God-shaped and God-centered view of life. All its pleasures, along with the enjoyment of them, everyone a gift from God. Here's one of the things that struck me perhaps most this week uh, from this passage, the idea of enjoyment being a gift, not a right. Uh, and in God's gift. See, we attach, don't we, a joy to stuff and think that having stuff is the guarantee to pleasure. It's a given. It's like it's in the box. But if we are in any way thoughtful about life, observant about life, we know that's just not true, is it? Whether the, whatever the adverts claim. I remember uh, being treated uh, by a, a wealthy uncle uh, to an incredible family holiday when I was 18. I think it was my first time to ever fly, certainly my first time, I think, in a hotel. And it was a five-star hotel, too. And I remember just trying to figure out that the countless number of knives that sort of seemed to sort of, you know, spread out from me as I sat down for a meal, and discovering that the hors d'oeuvres were just that. They were the hors d'oeuvres, not the main course. Brilliant. But one of my abiding memories was of a couple who sat next to us every single uh, mealtime. They were obviously well-heeled, they were wealthy, you could tell by the way they looked. It's clear they were on first-name terms of the waiters. And they knew which knives and spoons and sporks, uh, forks to use. But as the moment came for eating, they only grumbled. They pushed away, barely uh, touched plates of food. They turned away every wine the waiter brought and complain about everything, even the view, which was glorious, mountains, lake. When our waiter turned up the jug of water and it had lemon and ice, we were unable to contain our joy. <laughs> well, I never got that lesson that 
joy and pleasure is not simply a function of what we have. Or as Jesus put it, life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. And even if we have relatively little compared to some, though most of us, of course, have a lot compared to the majority of our world, if we, with God's help, are able to enjoy and to appreciate what we do have, we will find that there's nothing to envy when it comes to what others have or may not have. Perhaps one of the greatest challenges of this passage, the one that grates with me, is, is this idea that, in the words of the teacher, we learn to accept our lot, to enjoy, if it were, as it were, the slice of pie that God uh, has given us, and, and to be grateful for it rather than grasping for what others have. Uh, perhaps you're one of those people at the restaurant. You order your food, they order their food, and you look at the other person's food, and you go, oh! Is that you? Kicking yourself for not ordering what they ordered, envying what that person has on their plate. Perhaps we find ourselves doing that with lots of things, even with other people's lives. That's no way to live, is it? In fact, one of the most shocking verses in our passage, uh, chapter 6, verse 3, says it's better never to have known the light of life than to experience an existence marked out by that constant consuming envy and satisfaction. See, in spite of what our culture tells us, we can enjoy something, even if others uh, have things that look better than ours or cost more than ours. I know some people think that holds back progress and stifles ambition. Certainly subverts the assumptions that the advertising industry is built on. The teacher says that's the way of wisdom. Indeed, the way that God has designed us to live, enjoying not only his gifts, but knowing and enjoying him as that great and generous giver. A grasping that consumes us, a receiving that brings joy. It's interesting, isn't it, actually, that picture of our hand receiving, thankfully, is actually the very heart of the gospel, isn't it? Knowing that we deserve nothing from God, just hell. And yet God, in his grace, offers us life in his family, forgiveness, a, f- a church family that we can enjoy, gifts that speak of his love and care uh, for us. We deserve nothing of those things, and yet we receive grace and mercy. Just this week, as I finish, I was, I was uh, watching the Thanksgiving service of a friend I knew at university uh, from the Christian Union. Uh, Adrian was someone who didn't have a thousand children. He was never married. Um, he wasn't particularly wealthy. Um, Adrian's final moments as he battled cancer could have been lived in regrets, uh, envying those who were healthy, who had more years than he had, uh, a, a physical family perhaps surrounding him. But in the final sermons that he preached, uh, he rejoiced in the glorious privilege of being a child of God, rejoicing in his Christian family that he cherished radiating a thankfulness of someone who realized they deserved nothing and yet in Jesus had received everything. The verse that was most precious to him was the verse we started our sermon service with, Psalm 16. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hands. 
Well, there was someone who learned to enjoy the hors d'oeuvres of life and to rejoice as he eagerly awaited for the main course. Life in the presence of his Lord and Saviour. Well, I wonder what your takeaway from this passage this morning uh, as we start a new week. Perhaps it might be something as simple as this, simply thanking God uh, for your food as you eat it, um, as you enjoy it. Remembering to say thank you for food. When I was a child, I got to stay at my grandparents, and we always prayed the same prayer. For what we are about to receive, may the Lord make us truly thankful. As I eyed my sprouts, they, they loved the stuff in the garden that they put on our plates. I didn't. Um, I thought, yeah, God would have to make me thankful, because I'm not. I felt like saying, okay, happy now? I'm thankful. It's just a great prayer to pray, isn't it? Because that thankfulness is a gift from God. To enjoy something is a gift from God. So whatever we're enjoying or receiving this week, that would be a great prayer to play. Whatever we receive, may he make us truly thankful. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these challenging words, uh, these words that subverts the way the world works, but also the way our hearts are often are wired. For what we receive, make us truly thankful. Help us to receive not only your gifts, but to enjoy you as the giver. And even to look to you this week for the enjoyment of those gifts and yourself. Consciously, even as we perhaps sit around a table and say thank you for food. Help us and spare us from that life of frustration and futility and destruction. And give us that life of joy, a foretaste of that joy to come as we Enjoy it in your presence, face to face, uh, forever. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.